I'm, I'm pleased to report David's in a good mood because the Orioles have won. <laughs> thank you. All my people thank you too. Uh, David, what, why do you think baseball is metaphysically pure, purer than what you contemptuously call the oblong game? Uh, I, th I think it partakes of eternity in a way that having two sides of thugs struggling to get past one another to deposit some object in a goal or a basket or an end zome. It's kind of is, Manichaean. Hmm? It's a Manichaean thing. It is, yeah. There's it's mili military lines of force, whereas baseball is about venturing out from the origin and returning to the origin <laughs> um, of the course by way of experience. And then forces of evil trying to thwart that advance towards one's beginning, which is also one's true end. And it's not on a clock. You play until you win. So yeah, no, that would be one reason. But this, is, this could be a potentially very long conversation. Okay, we, we, we'll, <laughs> yeah, so. we'll delay. Um, my dear so, wife, to whom, as I said, I dedicated the book out there called Breakfast with Jesus. Um, we have wonderful conversations in the morning. We have the time to do it. Uh, in many ways, my thinking has been framed by Anne. It's uh, sometimes a difficult conversation, as in, hang on, two years ago you said X, Y, and Z, and that's different. You're contradicting yourself. Um, I, I draw deep breaths and <laughs> try and dig my way out of the hole. Um, she said, why on earth didn't you quote, of course, uh, finishing the last uh, conversation, in my beginning is my end, T.S. Eliot's Sublime Four Quartets. Um, I thought, in honour of that though, and this is a bit of a, I'm going to have, start with two poems. Um, the first is retrospective, looking back to that integrated view, that sense of divinity in all things. I think it's achingly captured at the end of Preludes by T.S. Eliot, um, which I'll read just the end. His soul stretched tight across the skies that fade behind a city block or trampled by insistent feet at four and five and six o'clock, and short square fingers stuffing pipes and evening newspapers and eyes assured of certain certainties, the conscience of a blackened street impatient to assume the world. I am moved by fancies that are curled around these images and cling, the notion of some infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing. Wipe your hand across your mouth and laugh. The worlds revolve like ancient women gathering fuel in vacant lots. Uh, I actually had that ending in my thesis, the idea of uh, an infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing wrapped around the world. Beautiful image. Uh, but now we're going to move on to the incarnation and um, uh, really looking at, again, to our focusing question, what does it mean to be a human being? That the ultimate template, destiny and shape of what it means to be a human being 
is uh, in the incarnate logos. That's that's our picture. That's our that's our claim, and that's our picture, and that's our north star as Christians. Um, before we get into that, though, probably nobody has written about that. I think as poignantly as Gerard Manley Hopkins. So I wanted to read his wondrous poem, which Eugene Peterson made the title of his great book, uh, As Kingfishers Catch Fire. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye, what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. I don't think anyone said it better than that. It's downhill from there, unless you can do better than Hopkins. <laughs> so, um, uh, the, the incarnation, I just need to find my notes on it. So in the last section, we looked at a integrated view of the cosmos, and the whole point of that, as we began with, was saying this is a context within which to put humanity. As we ended with priests in the cosmic liturgy. Um, now this opens up, uh, I think, yet another debate or competing or al alternate frameworks with the incarnation which is this, uh, I call it rescue plan or master plan. Uh, in another time I called it destiny or detour. Is the inf um, so there's a model of the incarnation that probably I grew up with, which it's a local event. You know, it's the 33 years of defined by the virgin birth and finishing the resurrection as a insertion I used to call it the bungee jump model of salvation, an insertion from heaven to earth to fix a problem we had. So uh, that picture of the incarnation, I mean, you can characterise it, but it's a, it's a very specific local picture of the incarnation. And I think uh, probably a lot of us have that at the back of our minds. We're going to look at a broader picture, implicit explicit probably in uh, many of the people we're talking about, which says, no, 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 the incarnation was, is the master plan for the cosmos, and in fact was necessary and, w and inevitable whether there was a fall or not. So 
Let's go back first of all, David, to this kind of idea of a rescue plan or a vertical insertion. I think you've said that if you do have a split world, if you do have a dualism, it's devastating for your view of the incarnation. Would you like to explain? Uh, yeah, no, I, um, I mean, it does become, uh, the incarnation then becomes nothing but a, a secondary fact that is an interruption of the story of God in creation. And curiously enough, this again is an issue in the, in the, in the 16th century with the Thomists, who, uh, because the, the view of Thomism, which, you know, in general, uh, I have to make sure that people understand the word Thomism does mean this school of thought, technically, at least it did until the 20th century. It didn't mean necessarily what Thomas Aquinas thought because Thomists weren't actually allowed to read Thomas. That's why they're called manualists. They, they prepared manuals that had excerpts from Thomas with commentary because Thomas himself, being n not a system but a thinker, went through changes. And so uh, the Thomas system says that, um, no, uh, there's no, that the incarnation is, is entirely simply a matter of the repair of, of uh, the contingent fact of, of the fall and is directed principally towards the salvation of souls because, of course, in Thomist eschatology, the rest of creation will be destroyed. This is odd. I mean, it's not biblical, obviously, but it, it is Thomism. Um, and it's curious. I mean, this, this is very different from, the, say, the Greek patristic and Latin. I mean, Augustine would say, you know, that, that the incarnation is actually the purpose of creation, you know. And in medieval thought, the Thomas, and Thomas is one who, on this issue, agrees with Thomism, that the incarnation, all we can say about it is it happened to in order to correct fallenness. Uh, the other school of Duns Scotus said the opposite, that no, the incarnation is the purpose of all things and therefore reveals the reality of all things. And that's why the Scotus tradition didn't accept the two-tier picture, the, 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 the fast division between natural and supernatural, between the natural desire for God and the idea of some sort of rational satiety in a, in a natural land. Instead, um, nature is always always only grace coming to its end or coming to it. So, um, so the question then becomes, what is the incarnation? Is it a revelation of all things, the meaning, the source, the end? Is it the full disclosure of how it is with God in relation to creation? Or is it, as you say, just a local event and in fact, an anomaly? So if the incarnation really uh, had all things been been going properly, wouldn't have happened. So it's sort of an unfortunate situation that it did. And of course, uh, just parenthetically, uh, Hopkins studied SCOTUS for about five, six years. Didn't he? More than that, he was a SCOTUS. I mean, he's in that 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 tradition. That's very much that was the in his time that was the dominant scholastic tradition in, in British Catholicism. And he wrote a poem on Scotus, which I won't he read did. out. He did. So what this, this view, and, and I guess what I'm very interested in are mental models. I mean, I, I think, 
I don't want to necessarily vilify them, we, but we we're all have mental models that frame how we look at the world. And I've often thought a lot of growth is breaking some of them down, going back to the comment I made about uh, the role of chaos in creative thought. Um, we, we have what I often call freeze frames, which are, we have mental models, but they're frozen. And my experience is that, I mean, you don't do this every day, but you, you do it over the course of a lifetime, that this growth is, and, and I've, I guess I've also thought the knowledge of God will always stretch me, it'll always be a revelation, so I should expect I'm going to have to have the breakdown of some of these freeze frames. And that's actually, rather than fearing it, um, you know, in our conversations, Anne and I, from time to time, she said, oh, you're becoming a heretic. I said, what's wrong with that? Uh, um, when I began my consulting career very early on, uh, a, a very wise British consultant told me, warned me, he said, Tony, you understand what strategy is, don't you? I said, no, what strategy? He said, strategy is heresy. Otherwise, you haven't got a strategy. You've just got a plan. You've got a plan when you know where you're going. Strategies, essentially, the system's broken. We need to think about it differently. Well, that's called heresy. He said, remember what they did to heretics. Uh, um, but the, this, this idea of breaking models down to get better ones, you know, so I, I tend to view these conversations we're having as not, not necessarily per se even criticisms or dogmas between competing points of view, but stretching out to grasp um, paradigms of looking at the world that are stunning and wonderful, but take work. And I think this is where we are, because it's probably natural to think of Jesus, you know, it's a very reactionary model to, you know, the world's got a problem, I've just noticed it, I'll send my son to fix it, then he'll come back. And that's the bungee jump model. Um, John Beer, who you admire a lot, I mean, he just critiques that as there's a huge logical, theological problem. Jesus is plan B. The incarnation is plan B. And we can't theologically have plan B if we have a power, you know, the, uh, the, the sovereign God. Um, and the other thing is, I think, in that picture of the incarnation is that, in my mind anyway, it almost made Jesus' humanity some kind of cloak, like, you know, that he was putting on that was merely there for short-term purposes, yeah. uh, get rid of it as soon as he could and go back to being eternal sort of thing. I mean, that's definitely a picture it encourages. I mean, that's not... Well, actually, uh, Calvin, uh, Calvin's Christology arguably is precisely that, because though the manhood, the man Jesus enters into eternity as having a special relation to the Son, uh, his humanity becomes uh, ineffectual in the order of, of, of grace. Uh, you know, so this was the great dispute between the Calvinists and the Lutherans regarding the communication of idioms between the divinity and the humanity. And Calvin fell much more on the side of what looks like what we would call Nestorianism, you know, in which there is a kind of inviolable partition between the divine and the human in Jesus. And and um, so, yeah. Uh, there are 16th century systems that would seem to suggest that that's exactly the the uh, the upshot of looking at nature and supernature. And yeah, and then of course, way. to our question, what does it mean to be a human being? 
with that model, the incarnation says nothing about that. It, it's right. not telling us about us. Because we could have been human without it, for one thing. Yeah. Uh, which is precisely what Maximus says isn't the case. Our humanity is entirely uh, modeled upon, it participates in, it has its existence in the union of the divine and human that's accomplished in Christ. Creation happens in Christ, obviously. Temporarily, it doesn't look that way for us, but according to Maximus, that is always, that is always the ground of the existence of, of, of created nature. It is that which the Logos from eternity will become and what we are, therefore, by participation. Yes. So, so what I'd like to do now is move to this broader view of the incarnation that somehow or other has the incarnation uh, as the governing archetype over all of creation before and after the 33 years of Jesus's life. It's, it's a paradigm and uh, <clears throat> it's something that I, I, I think will take us, uh, I want to approach it several angles just so that we can, can nourish our own thinking. Um, very simply, uh, one big word that does come up is recapitulation. Uh, Irenaeus famously, probably that's the word most people would associate with Irenaeus, which seems to imply a picture of the incarnation that is not local but universal across history. Would you like to just comment on that the idea of recapitulation? And it, it's or in Greek, anakephaleosis. We should all repeat that three times. Right? So, <laughs> Thank you. But, but yeah, no, it's, um, it's uh, again, based on this notion that, 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 that our true humanity exists only in the body of Christ. Um, and therefore, uh, though, so it literally means uh, becoming again the head. Christ becoming the head of the body of humanity is what restores us to our proper end and our proper nature. Uh, for Greg, well, Gregory is also another, you know, for, for, for him, as I think I mentioned in the last session, uh, that eternal reality of all, all of us united in the body of Christ, this is, of course, a universalist, uh, formulation with Gregory explicitly, but all of us united with, uh, in, together in one body in Christ is the ground of creation. That's the first creation of Genesis from which all else comes. Um, and so in once again being, the, in, in becoming the head of the body, which in this life, in history so far, the earnest of that is the church, but will ultimately become God all in all when all things are integrated into this reality, as Paul says, um, then our true nature comes into being. So that word, a bit like logos, is a rich word, re recapitulation. It is, yeah. and, and, but it, it certainly puts a different meaning, and we're going to go to Ephesians 1 in a moment, which I think you and I would say is one of the epic Mount Everests of the, of the New Testament, but... It puts a different frame around the idea of Christ being the head of the body. I've often heard, read, heard that interpreted as some kind of hierarchical position of you know, dominance and superiority, whereas what you're implying is if we say he is the recapitulation of all things, the headship is 
is more like the master plan of the body into which all the body conforms to the master plan. Yeah, no, I say that's, that's, that's well stated. I mean, that, that is what the word means. It's not simply a statement of Christ as becoming sovereign over the body of the elect, uh, you know, that, which is the, the reading it's given by oh, someone, I can't recall who. Yeah, and even <laughs> I was struggling once to describe recapitulation to someone. They said, why didn't you just say recap? And I thought, oh, that's sort of not bad. Um, it, it, it's actually very interesting if you start to say, oh, that's interesting. I can think of Jesus as the, as the summary, the, he's the recap of all humanity. He's all, it's all drawn up, summed up in him, um, and uh, all we are, all we want to be, all we can be, he... That, that gives us a, a, a very high Christology for a start, um, but a way to present to the world um, the uh, organizing, meaning-making power of the incarnation. Uh, what I would like to do is begin relatively concretely in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm not going to read it all out, but uh, this epic chapter which... Uh, in which Paul seems to be taking the Christians back prior to creation, to the beginning of all things. And um, there are some of these phrases which I'm just, I've got from your translation. I just want to throw up and ask you to comment on them. Yeah, chose us in him before the foundation of the cosmos. What, what does that mean? I mean, I know that some people think, oh, that meant before the foundation of the cosmos, he was saying, oh, I know everything's going, I'll, I'll choose that person, not that person, I'll choose that person. That, that's the model of that word choice there. But how do you read that? Yeah, I, 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 I guess I read it as Gregory of Nyssa did. It, it means that we all exist, not that we were chosen as a the finite number of the saved. Now, we, we don't, I mean, you know, there's a dispute as to whether or not Paul is the author directly of Ephesians, but it's clear that if he's not, it's in his school. It's his disciples maybe putting together words of his. There are historical reasons for thinking it was in its present form, comes after Paul's death. But it clearly contains his theology in a very pure form that's reflected in all the others. And it's worth remembering that Paul never uses the term elect to mean the body of the saved, the, 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 the company of the saved. It's clear from Romans 9 11 that the elect, uh, when he's talking about them as a distinct group, distinct group means just those who've been called for a mission that that's consummated in Romans 11 in the election of everyone. When, when, when it's proved that all are bound to disobedience, the mercy may be shown on all. But he doesn't use it, you know, he uses it about Israel, he uses it about the church, but it's not this boring notion that there's just a group of people whom he's arbitrarily selected to save and the rest of creation is just context. Uh, and the way, so the way I read it and the way Gregory read it, the way Karl Barth read it, famous reformed thinker, you know, uh, is saying that just that, that we, we are created in Christ, that, that we are chosen to be, we are chosen as who we are, that, and that all, it, it's only in that context that who and what we are is fully known to us. 
in seeing him, we will ultimately be able to know even as we are known and pass beyond the point where we see things only uh, in a mirror darkly. So the, the, the reading would be something on the lines of before the foundation of the cosmos, within the Godhead, within the relations between the Father and the Son, uh, God was archetyping, shaping what became all of creation in his Son. Yeah. And then, uh, moving further down that wondrous chapter, um, by the way, what I notice in that chapter is the thudding recurrence of the idea that all of this happened to delight the will of God. Uh, you, I love your translation, according to his will's delight. Uh, you know, um, we can often think, I suppose, of the will of God as something imperious, and, but this is delight. What, what is that word in the... It, it, I don't remember which one it was, actually. I'm sorry. I don't have the Greek necessarily committed to memory. Um, I'm disappointed. Might be I'm surprised. I think it might be... <laughs> Evdokia, I think. Mm. But it's delight. I mean, oh, yeah, definitely, it. yeah. And, uh, but then what you do with the word predestined, which is another one of these kind of problematic words. Well, I is, remember which word that is, yeah, pro yeah. yeah, marking out in advance. Can you just unpack that for us? You know, from, from this archetypal creation from before the foundation of the world, he marked out in advance for filial adoption to himself through Jesus, the anointed, according to his will's delight. Right. Um, of, of course, if you think that pro actually means predestined, and of course the, what became the standard late Augustinian notion was predestinatio ante previsa merita, which means that it has to be predestination without God choosing in advance based on him foreseeing your merits because then again it wouldn't be great again grace has to be posed against nature so it has to be utterly indifferent to who and what you are it's purely divine sovereignty well first of all that contradicts romans 8 right you know which which says it but all the i mean it, this this very strong sense of predestination since we use the word is not what the word means I mean, it really does mean marking out the outlines of something so it, again it's like it's uh, in the Septuagint it's used of Ezekiel Ezekiel's vision of the temple that he was marking out the temple. yeah it's it's seeing out it's and marking it out in advance um, and and delineating it, but it has nothing to do with destining some souls to salvation. Yes, it's, and, so it reminds me of what an architect. Yeah. It's like I'm specifying yeah. before it exists the shape of what it's going to look like. Yes, so roughly. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a design. So marking us out in advance is what an architect really? does, designing the layout of a building before it exists in order that it can grow into that shape. That's what. Oritzin, I mean, remember, this is the same, the same root that gives us words like horizon. It really just does just mean basically drawing, uh, more or less actually drawing a shape, drawing a boundary, drawing, a, a, drawing the outline, and then doing it in advance, pro-Oritzin. Yeah, that, that's wonderful. And then, of course, the famous wondrous verse 10, which was where recapitulation, the, cl the climax of this, that making known to us the mystery of his will, which was 
his purpose in him, in the incarnation, for a husbandry of the season's fullness to recapitulate all things in the anointed, um, which is his vision, I think, of the climax of all of creation, all purposes of God. That verse is, I suppose, to me, the most succinct uh, declaration of the end of all things, or one of them. Right, and you notice the image of, is of bringing in the harvest when it's full. And, and uh, that becomes the mystery of the history of time, you know, what goes on in the course of time. But the ultimate end is to bring in the whole harvest in its fullness uh, to, and to bring to fruition the, the, the creation that is envisaged from eternity in the person of the Son, but in the person of the Son as incarnate. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so, obviously, this, is, this has taken that word, quote-unquote, salvation, uh, from being a three-day event that's reactionary to sin as part of, quote-unquote, salvation history. It's really the whole narrative beginning before the foundation of the world of the templating of all humanity according to the image of the Son of God, of the Logos, yeah. um, and the return to that design. Um, and then, uh, uh, the, uh, the, as you say, the relent and, and the harvest brings in the idea of, I suppose, the work, you know, the, the evolution, the growth that's going to be a relentless gathering up of the creation into the arms of the Creator. And that's Paul's vision in that wondrous verse 10 of Ephesians, Ephesians 1. And um, it's, it's a wonderful chapter. I commend it. To, I know it off by heart. I have since I was a fairly, since I was a teenager, and I repeat it to myself in a prayer several times a week. Um, it's interesting. I won't go into it now, but I do commend to you all in Ephesians, read the prayers, because Ephesians has got two large... This in the second half of chapter one, he goes on to he prays for the saints, and he prays three things for them, and then he does the same in Ephesians three, and I think the reason I found that really interesting is what is his goal for Christians, because that's what he's praying for, and uh, I mean I won't go into it now, but with that question in your mind, read the prayers. He was the, the prayers were specific and focused. And they flow out of this vision. Anyway, um, let's keep going. Um, incarnation, I want to move on to something else about the incarnation, which is, which I think you could help us with, is the idea of Christ being the image of God and we are made in the image of the image. Now, I know that the idea of, an, of the incarnation as the image of God was something that patristics thought about a lot and wrote about a lot, I guess we can view image as some kind of declension, you know, that there's the reality and then if I draw an image of it, I'm, I'm one step down. Um, how did the patristics handle that? How was an image well, not a declension? Of course, Paul's language is of the express image, the character, literally, of, uh, which, which means a direct and flawless impress. Um, so it's it's got uh, it's more than just a shadow of a shadow, or, you know. Um, but it's fine. this is actually central to uh, Nicene 
uh, the determinations of the Nicene Council. In what sense is the Logos, or the Son, an image of the Father? Uh, because, uh, the, of course, there, were, there, there was a tradition in Alexandria that was of declension, that, uh, that uh, and many, this was Orthodox Trinitarian thought in that part of the world for many generations, that uh, the Son is a Nephthros Theos, a secondary God, who, in a sense, is more economically a contained form of those able to come into contact with finite reality. And there are any reasons, a number of reasons why this would become, would be rejected by the council, both good and bad, the bad being imperial pressure, the good being the theological arguments of the other side were much better. Um, so what became the great church tradition is to say that the true image of God is the image in precisely the sense that Christ says in the Gospel of John, he who has seen me has seen the Father. This is an extraordinary statement for the time because the Father, Otheos, the God in his uh, transcendence is the one whom no one has seen, you know, in inaccessible light. For some of the, in the early church, in the early centuries, they've said even the Son cannot see the Father in himself. He's, he was, you know, could just turn, he could be the head, the high priest of of rational beings turned towards the Father to worship him, but still there'd be a mystery in excess. But in John, you get these increasingly strong statements, and, say, and, and therefore what the image comes to be understood as in, relate, in terms of the eternal nature of the Son is that the very life of the Trinity is the infinite depths of the Father fully perfectly expressed in the Son, so that everything God truly is, is manifest in the Son. And by the light of the Spirit, that manifestation, the joy and delight of Father and Son, uh, can then be communicated also to creatures. And that what it is for us to be in the image of God is to become instances that can reflect the true, I mean, the true nature of the Father, not simply uh, a created allegory, not an emanated um, indication in the direction of, of, of an ever incomprehensible Father, though obviously, again, he exceeds finite hmm. e epistemic cognition, um, but that, that, that the, the image really is the fullness of, of who and what God is made perfectly manifest to God and then communicated to us who are images of the image. Um, and, and then, of course, the stunning corollary of that, which was why that essay of Karl Barth's on the, the humanity of God, there's a reverse flow. I mean, uh, that uh, there's a humanness in God in which we are imaged. Right. And that's Bulgakov, too. That's yeah. places where Bulgakov and Bart are very, very similar in their language by the end. I mean, for Bulgakov, the divine humanity isn't something simply fabricated in the incarnation. It's an eternal f truth about God, and so an eternal truth about us as well. Yes. And, and our blindness is we don't see it. Right. Uh, uh, which... It's right under our noses. It's right here in front of us. Um, I can remember my son saying to me years and years and years ago, he thought sin was darkening of the mind to the glory that was under our noses. 
which of course is why the burning bush was so important to the patristics. Do you just want to explain how central a theme it was for them? Well, actually, the, the use of the image of the burning bush has become increasingly popular in orthodox theology over the years, but it is first mentioned um, uh, by Gregory of Nazianzus in a sermon, you know, that uh, w w w the burning bush, of course, is you know, full of the fire of glory but not consumed, and that, that, that this becomes an image of what creation is to be absolutely pervaded by the glory of God, the fire of God's presence, and yet not consumed. It becomes all theophany, all manifestation. Uh, theophany, this, you know, that is the, the showing of God. This was a, a, a theological topic also of considerable consequence in the patristic period because the question was, in the Old Testament theophanies, who was being seen? Usually they would say, well, it's the Logos revealing the Father, because the, the, the Father is God as the hidden, and the Logos God as the manifest, and, and, the, and the Spirit God understood and loved as manifest. Um, and, and the burning bush is a theophany, it's, it's a revelation of God, so it's already, in a sense, the Logos appearing before the eyes of a man. Um, in in one particular form, and as I say, this becomes uh, becomes a sort of guiding image in Eastern theology for the ends of all creation, so that all creation will ultimately be this revelation of the Logos, entirely uh, glorified in 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 the light of God. You were asked a question. Um I think on the God and Beauty lecture, which was a good question, which was, you've unpacked a very powerful picture of Father and Son. Where's the Holy Spirit? Can you just complete the Trinitarian picture of the Holy Spirit in this imaging of God and recognizing of the image of God? How did they see that? Well, to begin with, in what became more and more the sort of very well worked out Trinitarian grammar of Christian faith, it wouldn't be enough to say that the Father is imaged in the Son over against, right? I mean, there's, there's a, a union in that very act that is the oneness of God. And the, what is the oneness of that act? It is the life of God, the Spirit of God. I mean, Spirit always means life. Uh, Pnevma is, is, is in, in this sense, and it's vague at times. That is, there's a certain mystery to the spirit. Gregory of Nazianzus points to this, harder to understand. Uh, but but uh, we ourselves, in our own experience, should have some understanding that that it's, it, even when we have a, th when, when we reveal ourselves to ourselves, and again, this, I'm basing this on Maximus, but I, you know, I could say it's true of Hegel, true. I mean, this is a, this is a, a running thing in the history of, of Western, uh, Western thought after the, 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 the uh, definition of God as Trinity. Well, when we utter ourselves, we come to know ourselves, in a sense, by going out of ourselves. Um, it's impossible simply 
truly to be revealed even to ourselves, except insofar as we enter into and engage with something exterior and, and become an image to ourselves. Our words uh, reveal something of ourselves to us. Now, we're not God, so this is a finite and limited thing. But what is that actual act of, re of revelation then? It's a coming to um, a perfect knowledge that reconciles the hidden and the manifest aspects of who we are. And that, within this tradition, is the light of spirit. That is, that is this consummated uh, in the delight of the knowledge, uh, the love that, that exists in that knowledge. Uh, so God infinitely knows himself and infinitely loves himself and in so doing infinitely knows and loves all that is because all that is exists within that that within that trinitarian life yes uh the that was a bit more obscure than i meant it to be but well it's i mean been a you, long day already it has so. well gregory gregory of nazianza said it's that the spirit is more mysterious to talk about but i think the idea of the spirit being the joy that interacts between yeah, father and Yeah, this is the phrase that recurs differently. Like, you know, for Augustine, it's the vinculum caritatis, the, 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 the bond of love of father and son. In, uh, in um, Gregory of Nyssa, it's the bond of glory or the, the bond of joy. Phrases like that again and again occur, recur. And the point is not that the spirit is some sort of just effect of synthesis. It's rather that is the life of God in its fullness in which both everything that is hidden in the, uh, you know, everything that is the, the father and everything is the son is both at once knowledge and love so that it's not simply a monadic kind of undifferentiated simplicity. It's always already relation uh, as well. Yeah. Um well, uh, there are a couple more angles, and then we'll take a break. You can right. take a rest. Um, clearly, looking at the incarnation in this way as the template, let's say, for creation, the master plan for humanity, um, you make the point in your gods that this, this isn't quite your language, but I think it's what you mean. It takes the incarnation out of religion, out of salvation history, and you you say it makes it the rational structure of all history, not just Christianity. We we have a a Lord who is Lord of the cosmos, not just the church. Uh, there is, as you say, no meaningful separation of history and salvation history. We actually end up with a very very uh, much bigger God. It did remind me of Bonhoeffer uh, and his move to religionless Christianity and what is it like if we took God out of our religious box and he was indeed Lord of the cosmos. Uh, so we, we end up with a bigger vision. Uh, actually, it's not a defensive, smaller vision. Ironically, it's a bigger vision of the, of, of the Lordship of Christ, don't we, in this, once we take it out of salvation history. That's been my contention for, for a while, yeah, that... Um, that uh one of the catastrophic errors of the Christian imagination, and it, you find it, I, I would say it's more pronounced in the Western tradition, but you, you find it in, in East and West and everywhere, is to imagine that the mystery of the faith really is 
nothing more than the story of, of uh, well, you know, something went wrong, something got fixed, and now I get to go to heaven, and if, lucky, luck, and if I'm lucky, so will my poodle. Um, and dogs go to heaven? Well, it, I mean, I believe so, yes, but... but um, Certainly Roland will. Oh, yeah, well, no, all of them, I, I believe, but... Uh, Reggie? Yeah, right, your dog is going to heaven, too. Yeah, so. But, it, it, no, but I mean, it is, it's funny how we've impoverished the tale so drastically so often, and, and, and you can understand quite why this happens, because maybe my immediate concern is just... I'm trying to get through life, and I hope one day that after this this life, things go on in a better set of circumstances. But the proclamation that was being made by Paul obviously goes radically beyond that. He's talking, I mean, chapter 8 of Romans or chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is a vast cosmic vision in which all of, all of creation, all of covenant history, but also all the history of those who seem to be outside the covenant, all of it now makes sense in terms of this ultimate, this, this ultimate destiny of all of creation to become the radiant, divinized, glorified manifestation of God in the infinite diversity of all things and in an, in an eternal communion of love and liturgy, as you say. It's this sort of all of creation in its different ways uh, adding their voices to this music. It's so much more beautiful a vision than the sort of tedious little tale of being in the company of, 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 of the predestined elect out of what otherwise is just a universal catastrophe in which again creation just becomes the context of your spiritual drama. Yes. It, it it's not part of the it's not what's essential in the incarnation. Uh, uh, indeed, a inspiring vision. Um, I'm going to finish with this, and it's I think the most abstract, but I think an incredibly to me intriguing part of your chapter on the chiasmus and the chiasmus of the sun. Very intriguing to me because I think. It, if we're, if we're honest, a lot of us have problem conceptualising how God became man. What's the man-God relationship? And um, we, we almost fit that as if there are two entities. Here's God. Another entity. Here's man. Somehow or other, I'm trying to blend the two of them. And you call that, uh, you, you, what you say is that conception of the Trinity uh, doesn't work. Um, you said, if the difference between God and humanity were a merely quantifiable difference between extrin extrinsically related things, the incarnation uh, would be a change in one or two of them, an amalgamation, but then Christ would not be the God-man, but a monstrosity, a hybrid of natures. Um, if we have that mental model of its two units somehow or other getting together, it won't work for us. You say the difference between the divine and the human is really an infinite qualitative difference that makes absolute sense of the incarnation. And 
it actually personifies the difference between being and created beings. So Christ is not an irresolvable paradox. Um, in his one person, there's neither both God and man, neither any diminution of his divinity nor any violation of his humanity. So I found that intriguing. I struggled with it, but I think, I, I think what I would summarise it, and I'm just going to throw the summary out and ask your comment as the final thing, is that in trying to work out how God and man were mingled in the incarnation, if we've got this idea of two units mixing, it won't work. If we have the idea instead of the relationship is not between two things, thing one and thing two, it's relation between the source of all being and all created beings. Uh, that's how to think, uh, and that makes sense of the incarnation. Can you help me? Well, yeah, I, mean, I think it's, it's when one pauses and considers it, it's clear enough that, that the story, that what the claim being made of the incarnation cannot be that in Jesus, God becomes something he is not, or that a man, a human being, has become something that he is not. Because if you become what you are not, then you aren't what you were. <laughs> I mean, it's simple enough. The claim that Christology makes is that Jesus really is wholly human, and wholly human in every natural sense. Uh, his divinity doesn't make him a demigod, and it doesn't make him a composite of the divine and the human. And it does—I mean, the, the, there's a term synthetos composite that's used of the, uh, but that's used in a very technical sense. It doesn't mean that he's a chimera. That it, it, you know, at this moment, you know, at one end is God, and at the other end is a man. It means that somehow we have to understand that in being a real, absolutely, un inviolably integral human being, he is also really, truly God, which suggests, which doesn't suggest, it requires logically that there's a prior non-repugnancy, there's a compatibility, there's already a fittedness of the one, that already to be human is already to be potentially God, to be God is already to encompass all it is to be human. Uh, the qualitative difference rather than a quantitative difference means simply that the way in which God is who he is, is eternal, infinite, intrinsic, undivided between essence and existence, whereas in us the modality is radically different, but it's a modality of the same reality, mm. the same being. Can, can I be even more, I mean, you, you brought up being, you know, it's a, the necessity of being heretical. Um, I sometimes use the language of Vedanta just to make a point here, but it's entirely, it's, you find it in the Christian tradition too. You find it in the, uh, in St. Meister Eckert talking about the spark of God within the soul as the ground of the soul what we are, the I am that is deeper than the psychological self is that infinite I am that I am that is the ground of all created spiritual nature. Uh, in Indian tradition, this is, you know, Atman is Brahman, that, that which is inmost, the I is God. 
uh, at the ground of her being, God is always already there. And just and Augustine too, you know, when he looked inward, he found that the ground of his being wasn't his self, but this divine light that was indwelling him. Well, that would mean that in all of us already there is a the na- there is a Christ nature, the nature like Christ. So when someone when Eckhart says, let the word of God be born in you. Let the infant Christ be born in you. It means that we're to be deified by, you know, union with, with that, uh, become one with that original ground through the, the union with Christ. But imagine, if you just want to think, what is the incarnation? What if there's one person for whom that Atman or Funklein or Pnevma within, because remember, it's the breath of God in Genesis that makes Adam a living soul, and that breath is the same as spirit, right? It's neshama in the Hebrew, it's pnoi in the Greek, of the, which is the same as pnevma, that the spirit of God is already in you. If there's one in whom there is absolutely no division between the finite historical psychological self and that divine ground. It's just perfect transparency, so there's total identity. So as Maximus would say, in this one, there is no deliberative will that is distinct from the natural will, which is divine. Well, who is that person? Yes. It's God incarnate. Hmm. And that's not a contradiction, right? That's not a paradox. It's not even a paradox. It's the perfection of what it is to be human, is to be Christ. Right. And so rather than viewing the incarnation, going back to where we began as... Anomaly. uh, an anomaly um, to you know a paradox. How can God be man? The question is, well, what else is there? Because if we uh, Jesus is the template, the prototype of all humanity, in which the divine breath perfectly expresses itself into life. It's just He's the perfect God-Man, showing us who we are in origin and will become in the end. So the man Jesus really is the eternal son of God, whereas the man Tony Goldsby Smith is infinitely progressing towards that, Toward that. Christhood, yeah, that, yeah. that filial place within, within God. Yes. It, many years ago I can remember saying to somebody, and I don't think I knew how profoundly true it was, uh, the truth about who you are is not in yourself, it's in Christ. Yeah. Um, so, an eminent, an, an eminently patristic thought. So, yeah, yeah. I'm glad that I was uh, following good footsteps without knowing it. Well, I don't know about you, but that's uh, food for thought. Do we think so? <laughs> uh, it's a wondrous vision. Thank you. Now we're going to have a break for lunch. Where then we have one more session, which is the end of all things, where this leads to it really is too so prepare yourselves it really is the end of all things this day you're on this very day so um i think if we we will regather at two o'clock that gives us a bit over an hour uh, for our final session and give david a good time to have a bit of a rest